The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. Through 25 seasons, 4,561 episodes, I believe The Oprah Winfrey Show was one of the greatest classrooms in the world. I really never thought of it that way. The aha moments, the breakthroughs, the connections, the occasional ugly cry. I miss him so terribly. I miss him every single minute. The LOLs, the moments that mattered. The eye-opening life lessons. Never allow them to take you somewhere else. I'm bringing them back. It's time to open the vault. I've personally chosen these classic episodes to share with you again. Every single person you ever will meet shares that common desire. They want to know, do you see me? Do you hear me? Does what I say mean anything to you? You are listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. You ever wonder how some people can even breathe after a tragedy or disaster? This was the scene in uh, Laguna Canyon on February 23rd. Here is how Tangerine felt that day. We had to do all the evacuating ourselves. We got out at, nine, at 8.45 and we went up and down the street getting our neighbors. My boyfriend carried out children four-year-old children through five feet of mud slashing through. He went back three times to get people off the roof. Well, Tangerine was left homeless. She had no insurance to cover what she lost. And even worse, this was the second home in three months that she lost. How does that happen? We were first hit by a flash flood mm -hmm. uh, in December. We had three feet of water in our house and four, five feet on all four walls of our house. And we moved downstream where the creek was underground and got hit by a landslide. Are you moving? <laughs> we, we got out of the canyon, yeah. You moved out of the canyon? We did. Because yeah. twice in the same canyon? Yeah. Well, we thought we'd be safe where we had moved because the creek was underground and uh, we didn't expect the hill to fall on us. We had uh, 40 tons of, of mud hit our house and swallow everything, basically. Wow. Yeah. And so what do you begin to do to rebuild yourself? In the aftermath, the next day, there was a moment I realized uh, we were homeless, and not only were we homeless, but my neighbors with three small children were homeless, and there were maybe 10 or 15 families that were, and I just, it spurred me into action. I jumped up and started a program to gather money and help us all get on our feet again, and that is how I coped, is working on that. By doing something for other people. Yeah, I had to. Uh-huh. Yeah. And how are you feeling now? Well, um... There's a crash that happened in the aftermath, both emotionally and physically. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when the real test begins, when everyone goes away and you're still there with it. Right. And uh, I wake up every day and remind myself that this is also a positive experience, and I have to view it that way. This is definitely an opportunity to grow. And what is, what is positive about it? Well, for one, a connection with Because you could be a great lesson right now to people who are sitting in their homes, yeah. home hadn't slid down a hill. They're just sitting in their homes and they're feeling really bad about themselves and their life. So can you tell us what's so positive about having your house slide down? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, the... that, wasn't, that wasn't positive, but it really broke my world open. We lost all stability in a matter of hours. And so I have the choice now 
to be a victim or to be a survivor. And every single day I choose to be a survivor and I choose to, to let this make me stronger. And um, I've connected with my neighbors and made new friends. Janet and David Sharp also know what it's like to lose everything. Devastating tornadoes rip through the southeast, bringing down trees and homes and human lives. And how are you now? I'm doing good. You doing okay? Yeah, um, I was at work when this happened. Uh -huh. And I came home and all I seen was my house down on the ground. Uh -huh. And I proceeded to call for my husband and my son and I didn't get an answer and then I heard my son and sounded like he was buried in the house. So I run towards the house and he grabs me, shaking me, saying, Mama, me and Daddy are okay. Mm -hmm. I bet it's a, a real, it's a, you can't even explain. I mean, listen, we're listening to you, but what that would be like to see your house a shambles like that. I mean, it's, it's like your life, your home, yes. a shambles. There it is. Psychologically devastating. Right. Okay. And, um, the Wednesday after the tornado from exhaustion and lack of being able to eat or drink anything, I wound up in the hospital really? for three days. Really? But you're better now? Yes, ma'am. What's brought you back? Knowing my husband and my son are alive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Material things are not important. I mean, what's important is... Did you think they were before? Well, you know, I've... I've I liked what I had, but uh -huh. I, that I have no more. Uh -huh. I mean, because we lost our home and our business. What do you miss the most? Well... Of the material things? Nothing, really. Nothing, really? Mm -mm. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, nothing really. No, as long as I have my son and my husband alive. Well, Pat and Don uh, did lose the irreplaceable right before Christmas, 1996. They got that dreaded knock at the door and found a chaplain on their doorstep, which, I mean, nobody ever wants to see that. What happened? Uh, it was December 22nd, and my husband and I had gone to bed, and our kids, 23 and 20, had gone for a ride after we'd gone to sleep. And they had skidded and gone off the highway. And uh, when the chaplain came to the door, I said, which one? And he said, both. And uh, my son was killed at the scene, and my daughter was careful to the hospital. Excuse me. And uh, so we called some very good friends, and they took us down to the hospital in Dallas. We were from Dallas, and it was uh, about a 45-minute drive down there to see if our daughter was still alive or not. We got there, and she uh, was, had had some brainstem problems and we didn't know it at the time but what had happened is their car had gone off hit a creek and my son had drowned on the scene because his chair broke and people had stopped two young boys stopped and they couldn't find my son they held my daughter's head out of the water which is probably why she survived as long as she did um, she survived I guess you can call it survived for four days and she died Christmas Day 1996 and was declared brain dead so we lost both of them and they were both adopted Okay, can you help us to understand how you get through that? Well, I think the thing that helped us the most, uh, we've got a history in our family of, of donating organs and donating bodies to science and things of that sort instead of just burying people in the ground. My dad did it, my grandmother did it, we, and uh, we donated my son's body to the medical school for research, and my daughter was able to donate organs. And it just gave us one positive thing to grasp out of mm -hmm. a very tragic situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we've worked with the organ bank mm -hmm. periodically. We'll speak to groups. We'll talk to other mm -hmm. parents. And it's so very, that's been very helpful. Very helpful. But what about you, Don? I mean, what gets you up every morning? <laughs> Seven days a week. 
Mm -hmm. We uh, we work very hard. Mm -hmm. It's uh, we keep busy. You keep busy. Very busy. Yeah. I work. You... We have we have our own business. He has a job and I have a job, and that keeps us going too. And friends and family have been wonderful support. Mm -hmm. Well, the question is, you know, there are lots of people who, you know, uh, I'm sure you've heard this from uh, family, from friends, and second, the, that crises splits a lot of people up because they don't have the coping skills. Because most people, as you know, are just, you know, maybe some of you are here today, and you know who you are. You know, I won't ask you to raise your hand. Um, who are really kind of like traveling on the edge of life, very fragile. Marriages are fragile. Relationships are fragile. And then the slightest little thing that happens just kind of you know, sends you over the edge. Or most people are so wounded in their lives that the slightest little bump reopens the scars for them. So what we're doing this show for is to decide what it takes to cope, why some people fall apart and never come back, and why some people turn it around. <laughs> We're talking today to Paul Stoltz, who's author of The Adversity Quotient, Turning Obstacles into Opportunities. And if you live long enough, people, you will have obstacles. <laughs> if you live long enough, nobody's just gonna cruise on through without some. Some are worse than others, mm -hmm. but everybody has theirs. And the issue, I think, is that when you're having yours in your life, you think yours is the worst that anybody's ever had. Hmm. But everybody has them. That's, if nothing else, the talk show will tell you that. That's right. Is that correct? And why do some people survive it and others fall apart? It's such an essential question to human success. We grew up in this era where we were told if you set your goals and work towards them, that's all you need to do. Right. And what we find out is that like, is not true. It's not true because what happens is nobody talks about the obstacles and the suffering and the difficulties mm -hmm. along the way. Mm -hmm. And what we now know based on some new science is the most fundamental element in human success is the ability to face and overcome adversity. We even have a way of measuring this, which is called your AQ. You have one, I have one. We all have an AQ, just like an IQ, but the difference is that your AQ is something you can permanently strengthen and change, whereas your IQ is more of a tattoo that you wear on your forehead your whole life long. So what we know is these people who have higher AQs have the ability to face and overcome adversity and even be strengthened by it. Yeah. Whereas, as we've heard here, and whereas some people who have lower AQs get more devastated when adversity yeah, hits. takes them out. Exactly. Oh, I've seen it. But you know what? When I was going through the trial in Amarillo, um, Maya Angelou uh, called me up one day and she said, uh, this is after I'd been on the witness stand for several days, and I said, you know, I'm actually feeling better. Hmm. I'm feeling better because what I realize is that trial, the trial in the courtroom is symbolic of all trials in life. Beautiful. When your house falls down, when your house is destroyed by tornado, when you've suffered devastating loss, yes. whatever that circumstance in your life forces you to look at who you are. And the first question is, why me, always? Mm -hmm. Why is this happening to me? And who am I mm -hmm. under this kind of attack? Who am I? Because I thought I was the person who lived in this home, who had these things. I thought I was the mother of these children. I thought, mm -hmm. and it, it causes you to question the who of who you think you are. And it, Absolutely. if you don't know who you are, if you are not grounded, it will take you out. And that who you are is really that piece about purpose in your life. Right. You heard Tangerine's story about how when she went through this, there was this incredible call to arms, this sense of purpose where she went out and she helped her neighbors. Mm -hmm. She got outside her own fatigue and misery and created this cause to locals for locals. And she helped these people 
recover. And my guess is, strange as it may sound, mm -hmm. that when Tangerine looks back on her life, some of her fondest memories will be this disaster because it will be what reminded her of her purpose. It will be what brought her closest to the people in her life. Let's go down the list of traits of a good coper. Yeah, one of the traits of good copers is that they have the ability to assign significance or have significance in their lives. For example, remember you had Beck Weathers on your show. He was the man who was buried in the snow in the fall of Mount Everest in oh, that yeah, tragedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he came back from death. Three parties came upon him and declared him dead. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of the night, in 100 below windchill, he saw a picture in his head of his children. children. Mm -hmm. And he pulled himself out snow blind and ended up living. And it's one of the most inspirational stories we know of. There was a significance inside him about his children, and he also had the second trait, which was a clear picture of the future. He wanted to get there. That's what we see in people like Nelson Mandela, mm -hmm. 27 years in prison. Oh, nothing like it. And he kept like true to his purpose in life, that's that right. 27 years. And that's, that's why I'm saying you have to have one, because if you don't have that, yes. then every little thing that comes along knocks you off your feet. Exactly right. Uh -huh. That's the anchor, mm -hmm. that and this higher significance that we have. Uh, you say this. I, I figured this out, too. I could have helped you write this book. Anyway, <laughs> uh, you say you this, that I, I figured this out too, that you feel the fear, but you just go ahead and do it anyway. And you know that's what right. I learned? That's what real courage is. You yeah. can't have courage without feeling the fear. That's right. Like people always say, I want to be courageous, I want to be courageous, and you think that that's something that's just going to come. You, you can't be courageous unless you're scared first because it's being scared and doing it anyway. Absolutely true. Yeah. Anything worth doing is gonna induce some fear the first time. Right. My children wanna be, one of my children wants to be a great teacher and the other wants to be a marine biologist. When my son Chase enters the classroom for the first time and sees those tough looking kids mm -hmm. who wanna rip him apart, <laughs> you know, he's gonna to have to face the fear and do it anyway. Do it anyway. That's, that's right. What that's what courage is. Do it anyway. So remember that the next time you think about being courageous, people think it's just, just like mm. discipline, getting discipline. Yes. You don't get discipline unless you feel like not doing the thing. That's like, right. I hear all the time people talking about, I wanna lose weight, but I just wish I had the discipline. <laughs> discipline comes from doing it when you don't feel like doing it. Those worst moments at your weakest moment, doing it that day. That's what it is. That's what it is. That's what it is. I know. That's a big thing. If you can get people to get that, that's really a big thing. That's huge. Because people think that courage feels that you're supposed to feel all great about having, I'm going to be courageous. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And look at, look at what this says about children. Yes. As parents, you know, if we had a hard time, we want to protect our children and right. say they'll have it easier. Right. But what kind of children would we raise if they never face adversity? That's right. And they'll... you don't get strength. You don't get strength. You know, the, the, right. the, the physical definition of power is strength over time. Yes. And you don't become powerful unless you're allowed to build strength. That's you right. You don't get strength unless you have adversity. That's what it is. And see, parents need to I let their it. children grow <laughs> yeah. so you get it absolutely. Yeah. Well, and it's who you are. Yeah. It's what helps us grow our character. It's what helps us grow our highest attributes are those moments we have to dig deep and show who we are, just like these people have all described here today. Uh-huh, right. You know, we talk about quitters, campers, and climbers uh -huh. in life. And the quitters are the people who give up and try to scare away and hide away and avoid life's challenges. And the campers are the ones who go partway up and say, Whew, this has been hard. And they set up camp and say, yeah. this is where I'm staying for the rest of my life. Yeah. And they create a comfortable prison and then over time they atrophy. The climbers are the people who stay true 
and move forward and up with a sense of purpose their whole lives long. These are the people like my grandmother who's 90 years old, who springs out of bed in the morning because she knows she has to go connect with people, whether she feels like it that day or not. That's the sense of purpose that keeps people going. So it's Those the quitters, are, the campers. And the climbers. And the now, where do most people fall? Which category? Well, people tell me around the world that at least 60% of our society is made up of campers. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. See, a lot of them camped out. Yeah. As I'm climbing up. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And look what the campers do to the climbers. Yeah. They try and either pull you yeah. down or go, what, are you crazy? Yeah. I think a lot of people have the notion that people who are successful in life, regardless, I don't mean just famous, but successful mm -hmm. in their work, that it's an easy thing, that you just kind of... It's one of the most frustrating facets of being successful. Is yeah. Everybody thinks, oh, it looks so easy. Yeah. But the problem is, or the challenge is, that people who really are highly successful, it's more difficult than ever. Yep. When you get above the tree line on that mountain and you pull out of the campground, you're facing some severe weather. That's why so many, yeah, it's cold up there. It's cold up there. Uh, the wind blows really hard. All the time. Uh, the problem is, that's why a lot of people, I think, want to be campers, because Paul was saying that people fall into the quitters and the campers, where most people are, mm -hmm. just kind of get stuck in life and say, I'm going to hang out right here, because to move any farther means taking a risk I don't want to. That's right. Um, before the show, our audience took a little quiz, which reveals how well you all approach adversity. Let's go down the list of questions. Uh, we've simplified the answer, so just choose the one closest to how you feel. Your boss, your boss tell, so, yells at you about your performance, or your husband, or if you're at home and you don't have a boss, um, friends yell at you. The reason you were criticized relates to A, all aspects of your life, or B, relates to only this situation. Yeah, the fundamental difference here is people who tend to catastrophize when adversity hits are people who see it as far-reaching. So they might say, well, the reason my boss yelled at me is because I'm an ineffective person. And I'm ineffective here, and I'm ineffective there, and I'll never be good at anything. Uh -huh. The person who sees it as just relating to this situation uh -huh. is the person who says, hey, well, it was a tough day, or we misunderstood each other on that project, but I do good at other things. Right, because I've had people who, you know, work for me where you say, you know, there's a problem, there's a typo here. And they think she hates me. <laughs> she there doesn't like me. She loves everybody else. She doesn't like me. She criticized my work. I'm trying. You want to say it's just a typo? Yeah, exactly. Next time, proofread. Okay. You're imprisoned. <laughs> You're imprisoned in a concentration camp. How much control do you feel you have over this situation? No control. A or complete control. B. Yeah. This seems like an impossible question. Yeah, it does. It really does. You, you think. These are the most adverse conditions one can possibly imagine. But as we know from the work of Viktor Frankl and others, that the person who's in that situation can control the most important thing, which is their response. Nobody can control what's happening in your mind. And as a result of that, you can control the fact that you stay alive. Right. I've heard it over and over again from Holocaust survivors. Yes. Yeah. Very, that's, yes. The most powerful story. Okay. Someone you care about gives you some harsh criticism. To what extent do you feel responsible for this situation? A, not at all, or B, completely. Absolutely. High AQ people do a great job of taking accountability. Mm -hmm. A lot of people avoid accountability because they think it will be a burden. Right. And they see it as the kind of thing that they go, well, you know, someone else better fix this, I better not. So high AQ people say, I feel a lot of accountability for dealing with this whether or not I caused it. And the low AQ person might say, well, it's all my fault, but someone else better come in and fix it. The U.S. government, my boss, whoever mm -hmm, it is, mm -hmm. because I can't. Do you believe people always have control? 
No, I don't. I think that there are a lot of things in life we can't control. What high AQ people do, the climbers do, is they find that facet they can control and influence mm -hmm. and work on that. Because you can control your response to a situation. Absolutely. A lot of situations happen out of your control. Like a mudslide. Like, right. And the only thing you have is the way you choose to think about what just happened. That's right. What you do with it from there. And you can turn it into one of the most positive experiences of your life. I mean, I'm sure there were people listening to that who thought, yeah. how can she say this is positive? Right. But she describes it as positive because she made it that way. Okay, your closest friend does not return your phone calls, and the reason your calls weren't returned is something that, A, relates to all aspects of your life, your friend hates you, or <laughs> relates only to this situation. Exactly. It, this situation is, well, you know, uh, they were unavailable, well, they're very busy right now, everything in your life is they hate me, everybody hates me, nobody returns my calls, and it's something about me. Okay, now, th there are some people out there who are watching, because you know, you speak to 20 million people, there's always somebody who falls into you know, uh, this category, of people aren't returning your phone calls, mm -hmm. and people really do hate them. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great... Yeah, it's it, a great... That's the truth, I'm Absolutely. telling you. So I'm telling you, if it happens over and over again, people aren't returning your phone calls, <laughs> and you think they hate you, they probably do. They probably yeah. do. <laughs> they probably do. And I would say, would you say they're also right in assuming that it probably has something to do with them? Yes, exactly. You know, mm -hmm. we talk about what's the constructive blame zone. Yeah. Women are more likely than men to heap it all themselves. Go, yeah. oh, there's something I did wrong. It must uh -huh. be me. What happens is if you only look at that part of blame from which you learn, so you say, what would you do different next time? Uh -huh. what, how would you handle a situation like this better next time? That's all the blame you need. Anything beyond that is useless shame. So if my child spills the milk on the floor, I don't need to say, look what you did. Shame on you. Right. That cost me $3.29. Uh -huh. All I need to say to this child is, what happened? And of course, he'll say, the milk fell. <laughs> and that's it. And then I'll say, okay. You were talking about mm -hmm. how to apply the adversity quotient, turning obstacles into opportunities to children. And you know we are in a desperate situation in this country. Absolutely. With, you know, now all of a sudden everybody's paying attention to children, shooting children, when it's been going on in the inner cities for years. Yes. But I understand that now it's noticeable for the whole entire country. Yes. And people ask the craziest questions like, why is this happening? And I'm thinking, why should it not be happening? Why doesn't on, it happen more? Yeah, based on the way children are being raised, based on the fact that parents are disconnected from their children. Yes. There is no family unit. What we teach children on a daily basis through television and other mediums mm -hmm. is that the way to resolve their problems is to knock each other in the head. That's right. And then we're shocked when they take a gun and shoot each other. Nothing could be more true. I don't understand it. Do you? I, you know, I don't understand it either. The only thing I can say is that in today's environment for all of us, it's more important than ever to develop your AQ and learn to improve how you deal with adversity. And we've got to teach our children this. Because but, they're going to face adversities. And you absolutely. can't go around knocking people in the head when they do things that you don't like. That's right. We are fortunate to have Dr. Edith Ager uh, in our audience today. She is a survivor of Auschwitz. She's also a clinical psychologist who lectures people on how they can overcome anything once they realize that the power is in their minds. You believe that? Very much so, <coughs> very much so. Everything was taken away from us except our last choice, the choice, the way we chose to 
respond to the situation. You like, were 16 years old when you were sent to Auschwitz, yes, is that right? And yes. saw your mother go to the gas chamber. Yes. And Dr. Mengele, who pointed my mother to the left, actually came after me and said, you'll see your mother very soon. And uh, for some odd reason, threw me on the other side, which meant life. I wonder today whether my life was in Dr. Mengele's hand or was it? And then that night, I danced for him because he was looking for entertainment. And he came to the barracks, and he wanted to know who could uh, dance for him. And uh, my friends who knew that I was uh, the entertainer of my city in Hungary threw me in front of him, and I began to dance for Dr. Mengele. The greatest performance of your life, really. Yes, yes. yes. So when your mother, you saw your mother the last time, what did your mother say to you? And the mother said to me, which I just finished telling uh, thousands of children, that everything can take, be taken away from you except what you put in your mind. And when I danced for Dr. Mengele, I remember my mother's words. And I began to actually choose to dance Dr. Mengele and pray for him because I believed that he was far more in prison than I was. Really? And as I danced for him, I closed my eyes yeah. and I began to see the world not the way it was, but the way it could be. And I pictured myself in a Budapest opera dancing the Romeo and Juliet. Today, when I work with sexually abused women, they tell me they, too, close their eyes and they imagine that they were somewhere. They checked out. The trouble is they're still checking out. So you refused to let anybody murder your spirit. Is That's that what right. it was? That's right. Because you realized you were more than the body. I had a choice. And I, I discovered, actually, traits I never thought was possible. And I'm so happy today to be here alive and turn my life into something useful that I can guide people from victimization to empowerment. It's, it's amazing. Absolutely. It's amazing. It's, and you listen to what you said. She said she would never have developed the traits she has now mm -hmm. had she not had this experience. Far more compassionate. And look at the higher purpose she has every day in sharing this message with others. It is difficult to imagine, you know, the death marches. You know, and I've talked to many people uh, and, and been to uh, Steven Spielberg's the Shoah Foundation out in Los Angeles. I was with Gerda Klein on you the death Gerda? march. Yes, yes I, I, I met her um, many years ago. And, and how long was that march? Well, I was, uh, uh, time was so hard to tell, but uh, thank God on May 4th, 1945, I was liberated by a young GI who looked through the then dead bodies and I was among them. So I almost didn't make it and I'm very grateful to be here on your show wow. and giving people a choice too, whether they're going to be victims or survivors or thrivers or prevailers, not just mere survival, but to really commit ourselves to each other. Yeah, that's what I say, not just survive, that's but be right. victorious that's in the right. world. That's yeah. right. Claim the victory. That's right. Claim the victory. Thank you. I'm so glad you. I thank you. I'm so glad you survived. I I uh, couldn't be happier to be here. So what she was saying about having it all in your mind, yes, is really the key to handling adversity. We were talking earlier though about if your life doesn't have any purpose, I don't see how you, I don't see how you do survive if you don't find a purpose. Those are the two essential ingredients. You need the purpose, you need to define your mountain, and you need to have a sufficiently high AQ and learn how to do that so that you can prevail and control your responses to adversity the way she describes so beautifully. Absolutely, without that sense of purpose, you get buoyed, lost at sea. When that blizzard hits on the mountain, 
when that avalanche comes, you have nothing to hang on to. It's that purpose that makes you prevail. Okay, how do you give people a purpose who don't have one? All those quitters and campers. Yeah. Me, well, I, yeah. you know, I think, first of all, I think everybody would agree that we're all born with a purpose. We all have one, whether we've sat down and made it pretty on paper and put it on the wall or not, mm -hmm. we all have a purpose. I ask people to think about their final day and think about attending their funeral, and if they could hear the word spoken honestly, what would they want people to say? And that helps us think about what our purpose might be. What would you want the loved ones in your life to say about you if they were honest about you? That says something about your purpose. What do you want written as your epitaph on your tombstone if you had one? What would you want those words to Well, everybody to be? is going to have one. That's a guarantee. Well, we, we do different things with uh -huh. our bodies, uh -huh. but whether we have that tombstone or not, what would we want it to say? That's what your purpose is about. And then ask yourself, what are you doing today to make that happen? If people, if you died tomorrow and people were honest at your funeral, what would they say? And what's the gap between the two? Yeah, what would they honestly say honestly, today? Honestly, judging by your behavior, not your intentions. Haven't you been to some funerals where you knew they was making it up? Yeah, <laughs> in a big way. But you're saying that's not the person I knew. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And people, you can tell when they're reaching to try and say something oh, yeah. really good. Yeah. Yeah. What would they say about you today if you died tomorrow and everybody in your life got up and they were brutally honest? Yeah. And yeah. that would be what your purpose was. Well, that would be kind of where you are now compared to what your purpose would want to be. And then whatever that gap is, that's what we need to work on. What is it today versus what you want it to be on that final day? If you could have it the way you wanted it, what would you want people to say about you? Honestly. Honestly. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Dr. Thank, Thank you. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe rate and review this podcast join me next week for another oprah show the podcast and i thank you for listening